Welcome to the Indie Matters Podcast, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, and this week on the show, reporter Jacob Solis debriefs reporter Megan Messerly on her trip to the Iowa caucuses, which are the first step in the presidential nominating process. She recaps her experience on the ground and her takes on the technical difficulties that delayed the results for days, including what it means for Nevada's caucuses. After that, I chat with our correspondent in D.C., Humberto Sanchez, as he breaks down this week in the Capitol. From President Donald Trump's impeachment acquittal to his State of the Union speech. After that, John Ralston and I talk about 1917, another Oscar-nominated film. But first, let's hear a few indie stories read on the radio for our partners over at KUNR Public Radio. Originally reported by Michelle Rendells and Riley Snyder, a teachers' union's proposal to raise Nevada's sales tax is estimated to bring in just over $1 billion a year for school districts and state education accounts. A proposal by the Clark County Teachers Union calls for raising a portion of the state's local school support tax by 1.5 percentage points. Fiscal analysts estimate that the higher sales tax would result in approximately $999 million in additional revenue for school districts and the state's K-12 budget next fiscal year. The sales tax increase is one of two proposals from the Clark County Education Association as part of what the union leaders describe as the final fix for Nevada's education funding woes. The other proposal is a gaming tax increase projected to bring in $652 million over a two-year budget cycle. Originally reported by Riley Snyder, a new initiative petition could open up primary elections in Nevada to all voters regardless of party. Drafted by Senator Ben Kiefer of Reno, the proposal would create a top two or jungle primary system where voters regardless of party affiliation would be allowed to cast ballots for any candidate during a primary election. The top two vote-getters would then continue to the general election regardless of party. Nevada's current electoral system requires individuals to be registered with a political party in order to vote in a primary election. Kiefer, a Republican, says that the move is a step in the dramatically right direction given the state's growing number of nonpartisan voters. However, before the changes can go into effect, the proposal must get more than 24,000 signatures in each of the state's four congressional districts before it then heads to the legislature or the ballot for adoption. For KUNR News, I'm Joey Lovato with the Nevada Independent. It's been nearly a week since the Iowa caucus descended into chaos after a number of problems delayed the announcements of results well into this week. Now, for disclosure, it's Thursday and things are still changing. But what exactly went wrong in Iowa is complicated, and it could have major ramifications for the rapidly approaching caucus in Nevada. Our very own 2020 reporter Megan Messerly was on the ground in Des Moines when it all went down, and she joins us now. Megan, thanks for being on the podcast. Happy to be here. All right. So let's rewind the clock. You were on the ground in Iowa on the night of the caucus. Let's walk through that night. And can you let us know exactly what happened? Right. So I was at Roosevelt High School in Des Moines. Um, The precinct that I chose is one of the larger precincts. They award some of the higher number of delegates in, in the Des Moines area. So there were a lot of people there. There were 680 people in the first count of attendees in the room, which is a 
quite a lot, especially compared to what we see here in Nevada. Um, we have generally more caucus sites than Iowa has, and, and attendee counts are usually a little bit smaller than that. 680 is quite a lot. Um, so it was really interesting seeing the process play out. It's pretty similar to Nevada's process. Um, a difference, the the campaigns or their representatives gave speeches at the beginning before the, the first alignment process in Nevada. That happens after the first alignment. It happens in between when you're trying to persuade people to come over to your side before final alignment. Um, the site I was at, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren stopped by. She actually spoke on behalf of herself. That can happen sometimes, you know, you just need a campaign representative to come speak. And she is certainly that. So she was there and gave a pitch to the crowd. And then we went through the process of sort of counting everyone. It was interesting. The precinct chair was actually the head of the Iowa State Education Association. And so she was counting them sort of teacher style. She made them all raise their hands and she would count them off one by one and have them put their hands down. There was a lot of raise your hand if you can hear me. But in general, despite being such a large crowd and taking quite some time just to get through the process, being there actually ran fairly smoothly, I thought. Okay, so no problems with the caucus itself. Those came later. So now when did you realize being on the ground when something was wrong? Right. So you know, looking at Twitter, I kind of started to see people talking about the app and having issues with this new app that the Iowa Democratic Party was using. This was an optional caucus night reporting app where, um, you know, precinct chairs could input the numbers for their precinct and that would be transmitted to the, the party. And, you know, historically, the way this is done, usually you just call your numbers in or something of that nature. Um, so this was supposed to make it easier. So I started, you know, seeing some reports and it was getting later and later. You know, I was, again, at a really big precinct. So it was taking quite a bit of time and I was a little surprised that there were no early results coming in yet, but, you know, figured maybe other precincts were just taking some time too. I don't think I really realized exactly what was going on until I, I went to um, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders watch party. And by the time I got there and got set up and was looking more at Twitter, and then I think it really hit me when um, Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar took the stage with, you know, 0% of precincts reporting. We were in a press filing room and, you know, she came on on the TV and was giving her Beach where she was saying, you know, we, we think we're, you know, doing well. We, we don't know for sure yet because there are no results, but she was feeling optimistic. And then one by one, the candidates all started giving their, you know, quote unquote, victory, you know, caucus night speeches, again, with 0% of precincts reporting. So I think it was at that point that I realized, oh, I, I really don't think we're going to be getting any um, results tonight. And, and there's something, um, there's something wrong here. And, you know, I think early on, we started hearing complaints of people didn't know how to use the app. Some people just weren't using the app. Um, phone lines were clogged and it was hard for people to get through to call the party to report their results that way. Um, so I think we had a sense of what was wrong, but it actually wasn't until Tuesday morning that the Iowa Democratic Party released a statement um, letting people know that there was what they described as a coding error within their app that had contributed to some of the uh, difficulties with reporting and not even difficulties, but the lack of reporting on actual caucus night. And so we didn't actually get any results until Tuesday night, East Coast, Iowa, East Coast and, and Central Time. Mm -hmm. And then that was only about 60% of results. And we don't even, we didn't get full results until today-ish, Ish. not really. Yeah. And now the DNC chair, Tom Perez, is calling for a re-canvas. Yep. Now, with all that as past, <laughs> is that now going to be prologue for Nevada? Yeah, I think, I think that's the big question is is what happens from here. So, you know, something interesting, I think, to note about the the night of the caucus, um, reports started 
surfacing that there was this company, a political technology company called Shadow Inc. And um, campaign finance reports had shown that both the Iowa Democratic Party and the Nevada State Democratic Party each paid Shadow about $60,000 each. And I went, I, I, I saw sort of reports of the circulating and I went and double checked myself and it was the case. You know, but we didn't know for sure who had developed the Iowa app and who was developing the Nevada app. You know, previously both the Iowa and Nevada Democratic parties had not disclosed the, you know, vendor who was developing the app for them, citing security concerns. But it finally came out on on Tuesday, um, The there was confirmation that Shadow had developed Iowa's app and then I was able to talk with um, a Nevada Democratic Party official later in the day who confirmed that Shadow was the de- vendor developing um, the two Nevada apps um, and that the party was not going to be using those. Actually, the party had put out a statement earlier in the day, this is the Nevada Democratic Party, put out a statement earlier in the day saying, um, we won't be using the same app as Iowa, we're not going to be using the same vendor as Iowa, you know, what happened in Iowa is not going to happen in Nevada. But I personally had a lot of questions about, okay, what does that mean? Are you saying that Shadow wasn't your vendor and you paid them for something else and someone else is developing your app? Are you saying Shadow was your vendor, but you're not using them and now going to some sort of backup method? Um, So it wasn't until later in the day, later in the afternoon on Tuesday um, that I was able to get confirmation that Shadow was the vendor uh, for Nevada. And they're now in the process of figuring out what the best next step is. And like you mentioned, we're recording this on Thursday morning, um, we may get some clarity in the next couple of days about what exactly you know the the new process in place is going to be. But by all accounts, that's what the Nevada State Democratic Party is in the process of figuring out right now. Now, there's some crucial differences between the way that the Iowa Democratic Party handled their the rollout of the of the app and the way that Nevada was preparing to use their apps. Can you dig into that a little bit? Yeah. So I think one of the things, first of all, in Iowa, there's just one app. Um, it was again a caucus night reporting app. It was optional. Um, And our understanding is that, you know, this app was released fairly late to precinct uh, chairs. They were, a lot of people said they didn't feel like they were given enough training on it or any training on it. They were just told to play around with the app. So this was, you know, it doesn't seem like there was a very um, sort of smooth rollout of it, or at least folks did not feel like there was a smooth rollout um, and that they were sort of getting this information last minute. Um, Additionally, because it was an optional app, some folks were just opting not to download the app entirely and just going directly to sort of the old, you know, paper telephone method. In Nevada, I think the interesting difference is one, there were going to be two apps. One of them is for was designed to be for early voting. So that was actually an app that would be on an iPad at early voting locations because Nevada, for the first time this year, has four days of early voting before the caucus from February 15th to 18th. The way this app was supposed to work is you're supposed to be able to select up to five presidential preferences ranked in order um, and be able to submit those to the party. And the goal was that that information would then be able to flow to your home precinct and be counted alongside your neighbor's preferences just as if you had been there on caucus day. So a lot of this Nevada process was heavily reliant on this app to sort of have this smooth transition. Then the second app in Nevada, which is a little bit more similar to the one that was in Iowa, our understanding is that it's a little bit more similar because it's a it was a caucus day reporting app. And so that's the app that precinct chairs would have on their phones. Um, that date, that app would pull in the data from early voting. So at different points in the process, it would tell them, okay, 20 people from your precinct early voted. And okay, now you're doing the first alignment. Now we can tell you that five people have, were supporting X candidate and four were supporting Y candidate. Um, so it sort of walked them through every step of the process. And then like Iowa, it was to be used for the submitting of results to the party. The interesting difference, I think, is that the 
Nevada Democratic Party here had actually um, released details of these apps publicly. I wrote an article back in December. Um, they shared screenshots with me. Um, party officials sat down and walked me through exactly how the process was going to work. Whereas it, I think it was an NPR story in January that was the first story that reported there was even going to be an app in Iowa. And they did not have a lot of details or were not able to glean a lot of details about exactly how that app was going to work. So Democrats here in Nevada have been, it seems, much more transparent about how the app is supposed to work. And they had already started training their volunteers on this app. It was already active in the field. Precinct chairs, party officials told me, had this app on their phone and were able to use it and test it. Um, and again, you know, we're still many, uh, we're still many days out from from the Iowa caucus. This wasn't a couple days before kind of situation. So that's not to say that you know this app, you know was without problems, we just don't know, right? Like um, the party has said that they, you know, have worked with security experts, they've been working in consultation with the DNC um, to make sure the app functions, but we just don't know how similar this app really was to the Iowa app and whether it would have had some of these same problems. But in an abundance of caution, they are, you know, abandoning these two apps and now figuring out a different solution for the caucus. So if anything, this is just a reminder that these caucuses, more so than primaries, are run by the state parties. And it's the state parties and the differences between them that might affect this kind of thing. Exactly. And I think there's been a lot of conversation in the wake of what happened in Iowa about you know, should state parties be holding their own caucuses? Should volunteers be so involved in the process? And, you know, there are varying schools of thought on this. Nevada Democrats have especially liked holding a caucus for, for quite some time because they see it as an opportunity for party building. They um, offer same-day voter registration. They consider that a very important function of the caucus. You know, but there are arguments to be made, too, on the other side that maybe there would be more, you know, public trust in the process if it was run by sort of these, you know, government officials who this is sort of their career is to make sure that the elections are secure and sort of it goes both ways. You know, the the this is a presidential nominating process and ultimately, you know, it is up to the party to choose who they want their nominee to be. So they do kind of get to set their own rules. And so I think it's it's a you know it's it's an open question and it depends um sort of what the Democratic National Committee and you know what um you know party officials here and in Iowa and across the country I think look um you know once all the dust is settled and you know we have the benefit of hindsight to figure out what what this is all going to look like moving forward. So let's end with the politics of all this, because that matters too. And the big boss here at the Nevada Independent, John Ralston, every day he tweets, we matter. Now, yes. does Nevada matter more because Iowa was such a mess? I think, I, I mean, I think Nevada always matters. I think regardless of what, you know, could have happened or would have happened in Iowa, um, what happens in Nevada is still going to be really important. But I'll say it for a couple of reasons. Um, you know, one, I think we rely on Iowa a lot to set a narrative, right? Um, you know, reporters and political campaigns, they invest so many resources for months in Iowa and count on Iowa to be the first state that gives a sense of, okay, where is this race going? And, um, you know, that's not necessarily always going to be correct, but it, it is a barometer and it's the first, you know, official barometer that we have other than poll results. So, you know, there's obviously still momentum coming out of Iowa, you know, with former South Bend uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg and Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, um, you know, being pretty close, the front the front two in Iowa and, and pretty close at that. Um, you know, so they will still have momentum coming out of Iowa, but it's sort of delayed momentum because it sort of took us some time to figure out exactly who would come out on top. And now, as you mentioned, um, you know, Democrats nationally calling for a re-canvas of the results to make sure that the, you know, results are what they say they are. They are what they purport to be. So 
I guess the answer is yes and no. I mean, what happens in Nevada was always going to be important, um, but I think it's, you know, even more so um, not just on the, you know, the side of of who's going to win. For instance, um, former Vice President Joe Biden came in fourth in Iowa, you know, far behind what I think folks were expecting of him. So Nevada is sort of this crucial sort of, um, you know, barrier firewall for him to see how he does before he goes to South Carolina. The argument being that he performs much better with voters of color. Nevada is the first early nominee or uh, first diverse early nominating state, so it's going to be really important for him to perform well here. So that's you know more true now than ever. But I would say the second layer on top of that, beyond just who wins, Nevada is going to be important for seeing okay how does the caucus process play out in such a high profile state, and what is the future of the caucus process going to look like? And so I think we're going to have that double layer of scrutiny heading into the February twenty second caucus. Okay, well, we'll have to leave it there, and we'll have to see what happens next. But Megan, thank you for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, so we are joined by uh, our man across across the country, Humberto Sanchez, out in D.C. How's it going, Humberto? Hey, how's it going, Joey? It's good. Is it, uh, is it cold there in D.C.? It's uh, cold and rainy right now, and there's a cloud hanging over the Capitol, as usual. Uh, whether metaphorical or physical, <laughs> it's it's cold here in Reno, but I've heard it's getting warm in Vegas. So uh, I guess we'll have to go down there at some point. But a lot's been going on in D.C. this week. We had the the impeachment acquittal um, at the Senate, and then we also had the state of the state of the union. I'm kind of curious around the acquittal that happened yesterday on Wednesday. What was the mood kind of surrounding the Capitol? It was a very historic event because impeachments are so rare. This is only the the third time in U.S. history that uh, a president has been acquitted by the Senate after being impeached by the House. So it was it was uh, very serious and solemn, and uh, and there were there was a lot of grim faces on the Democratic side, and, and a lot of, of people who are a bit more upbeat on the Republican side who are are champions of the president. So it was pretty unprecedented that Senator Romney uh, actually crossed the aisle and voted to impeach President Trump, and that's the first time ever during an impeachment um, that. A- a senator from the republic or from the party of the president voted to impeach was there a lot of pressure on him to to vote no absolutely absolutely the, the president just really has an iron grip on republicans right now because he's so popular in republican districts and republican states so crossing him uh you could put your political future at risk so it did take a lot of courage uh and also democrats were it really they, they celebrated Romney as, as a hero, basically, and also uh, they, they took away the talking point of, of, of the president who's ba- who wanted to say that, you know, he was acquitted without any Republicans crossing the line with, with all Republican support. And, and Romney's vote took that away from the president. During the acquittal, all of the Democrats voted, voted to impeach and all but one Republican voted not to. Did you get any stance from the Nevada delegation on how they felt about the vote afterward? Yeah, they were among the solemn. They, they uh, cited that doing their, their constitutional duty as, as paramount in this, in this uh, very political exercise. But ne- nevertheless, they, they said it was their duty under the Constitution, and they went into it with an open mind. Both, both were r- relatively guarded about their positions uh, whenever I approached them, uh, whenever I got a chance to approach them, because there was a, a lot of restrictions on the press, uh, this, uh, more so than usual in the Capitol uh, during this process. But whenever I approached them, they were very guarded. They always uh, wanted to say they wanted to keep an open mind. They were they were going to do impartial justice. They were going to put aside any political feelings they have about the president, and uh, and that's how, that's what they said. And despite well, in in assessing the arguments, they both came to the conclusion that he did abuse his power under and also obstructed Congress. And uh, the, the, basically, the, the Democrats' argument is that the president 
held up funding for Ukraine and uh, held up a meeting with the president in order to pressure the president of Ukraine to investigate Vice President Joe Biden and essentially meddle in the 2020 elections. The House Democratic managers, there were seven Democratic managers appointed to make the case in the Senate well. They stood in the Senate well and they, and they made their case. And every senator sat in their seat during the entire two weeks that uh, this went on, listening to this uh, hour after hour. Uh, and our two Nevada senators were convinced uh, with beyond reasonable doubt, beyond any, any doubt, that uh, the president violated his oath of office. And then also, in not cooperating with the Democratic investigation, uh, obstructed Congress uh, in so doing that. So the other big news from this week was the State of the Union, where President Trump, you know, addresses the nation and generally gives a big speech. What was the what was the air around that this week? Well, it, it came right before the acquittal vote. the The president had hoped to have that done before his State of the Union address. Democrats managed to hold up that vote until the day after. So uh, everybody was wondering whether he was going to mention impeachment uh, during his speech, which he did not. It, so it, it was very tense because this was, this was also the first time in, in several months, perhaps, that the, spe- the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, had met face to face with the president. And she sits behind him because uh, he comes to the House chamber, all of that, which is the only space that fits all 535 members of Congress. And they all sit there and listen to the president uh, give a speech on the State of the Union, and uh, and so we were everyone was watching to see how they would interact and, and what would happen uh, as as that transpired. And so there was a bit of tenseness going into that. Yeah, I I, I remember when I was watching it, and, and at the end of the speech, she tore up the speech, and during the entire speech, she was actively not paying attention and kind of putting her head down. Um, it seems like you know the partisanship and stuff that's going on in D.C. is, is not improving in any way. If, if anything, it's probably getting worse after this impeachment, it seems like. Yeah, from the get-go, he she outstretched her hand to shake it in a traditional greeting. You typically, typically shake hands when he gives her a copy of the speech, and he, he turned right around and went went back to facing the, the, the members of Congress so that it off the bat, it was, uh, it was not uh, going well. It was not going as, as planned or as usual. There's usually some camaraderie there, and, uh, and not, not on that night, though. What was the general message of the State of the Union this year? Well, it was very interesting. Uh, Democrat, the Democratic reaction, including from our, our Nevada Democrats, w- was basically that this was uh, a campaign rally, a Trump rally dressed up as the State of the Union. Uh, the message was basically, look at my successes in the economy, look at my successes in, in trade, it, it passing the USMCA, which is a trade deal between Mexico and the United States and, can- and Canada. And, uh, and also uh, the successes he believes he's had in immigration and, and uh, lowering people crossing the border illegally, the jo- jo- low jobless rate that is put out by the Department of Labor. And so he, he was basically making the case on why he deserves another, another uh, term. And, and he was received very well. It was re- received very well by Republicans who, upon him coming in and him starting his speech, were sh- ch- chanted out four more years, four more years, which was somewhat unheard of and, and really chafed the Democrats because they thought it was a very political speech and, and they, they were very turned off by it. One, one of the things that he mentioned during, during his speech was that he wanted to reduce prescription drug prices. And we thought this was kind of an interesting stance because there is a bill that passed the House and is now going to the Senate that would reduce prescription drug prices. And he, he hasn't seemed to show, show any support for that bill at all. That's right. The House uh, passed in December a bill that would allow Medicaid, Medicare to directly negotiate pr- the prices of up to 250 drugs, prescription drugs, uh, including insulin. Negotiation is banned under a 2003 law, and, uh, and he, he 
issued a veto threat on it. And, and uh, Mark Amadea, the only Republican in our delegation, also voted against it. And their, and their right rationale was basically it was it's overly burdensome and it puts too much red tape up and it would hurt drug research in, in essence. But uh, there is a chance there's a bill being worked on in, in the Senate Finance Committee, which uh, uh, Senator Catherine Cortez Masto is a part of that committee. And that has bipartisan support. So that's where all eyes are looking now on that on that front, whether whether that bill can come out of the committee, can it get through the floor and then possibly either a conference with the House bill or uh, or include House provisions in it and possibly get to the president that way. What else do you have going on in D.C. this week? We know you have your wonderful column every week. It's, it's my one of my favorite reoccurring columns we have. I feel like it sums up everything going on in D.C. really well. It's uh, the D.C. Download, which comes out on Saturdays. But what else can we expect to hear on this week's D.C. Download? So as the House was, was finishing, I'm sorry, as the Senate was finishing up on, in, on impeachment, uh, the House teed up several bills that uh, are they're going to pass this week, including one bill that will register the disapproval of House Democrats on a plan by the White House, recently released by the White House, that would turn Medicaid into a block grant system, which essentially reduces the spending from, on Medicaid because it, it doesn't grow with inflation and it doesn't grow with healthcare costs, but that funding that would go directly to the states, as opposed to it currently now is, which is an open-ended system, which fluctuates with the cost of Medicare, with the cost of, of healthcare spending and the cost of inflation. And uh, the Democrats think that uh, they're not, they don't think the White House has legal authority to do this. And so the Democrats put together, House Democrats put together this, this resolution of disapproval is what it's called, and it will formally try to stop the, the White House from doing it. However, it has no chance in the in this in the Republican run Senate. And so uh, it will mostly be a messaging vote where they're saying they don't want this done. We'll see wh- whether Congress does step up because it's uh, an important entitlement, especially in Nevada, where under the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, Medicaid was expanded uh, and uh, many, many people signed up for this health care and many more people are covered now than were before the ACA. All right, great. Well, Humberto, thank you so much for being on the podcast this week, and hopefully we'll hear from you again soon. Enjoy the the balmy weather in D.C. Hopefully it warms up. Thanks, Joey. Anytime. All right, we're at John's favorite segment of the podcast, the movie reviews at the end. Uh, John, you and I have both now seen uh, 1917, and you really liked it, right? Yeah, I thought 1917 uh, was a phenomenal technological achievement, at least, Joey. I think it'll win all of, of, of the, the technical awards. Uh, it's essentially one shot, which a lot of people think is a gimmick. I didn't think it come, came across as a gimmick at all. I, and I thought the story itself was pretty compelling. And I thought the two young actors were both really, really uh, good in it. And and I, I would not be that upset at all. I, I don't think it was quite the best movie of the year, but it was second or third. I totally agree on the technical standpoint of the movie. I thought, uh, technically, I thought it was phenomenal. I mean, watching the camera go from a battlefield to hovering over water to, to, to doing 360s around the, the, the characters was amazing. And it, for me, the whole time I'm thinking, like, how did, how did they pull this off? And I ended up going home and watching some YouTube videos, like, explaining how they did all of it. And it's, it's, it's phenomenal. It's amazing. And also the sets. They built miles and miles of trenches that these guys were running through. Um, they had to with, with being one shot, right? They had to build them miles, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and I thought, you know, I, I was wondering if the one take would seem like a gimmick. And I, I, didn't, think it, I didn't think it felt like a gimmick at all. Um, in terms of story, I, I did like it. I thought it was good, but it just... I, if it wins Best Picture, I'd be very surprised, like you said. I, I think that the story was almost second to the technical prowess of the movie. But I think that doesn't 
take away from like the fact that you should go see it just because it's really nice just to like watch, just to see it. Yeah, I, I listen, I, I think people have said, well, the story can't match uh, the, the, the technical achievement. And I think almost nothing could match that technical achievement. And even if it doesn't win Best Picture, which, by the way, it might, um, uh, it, it, you never know with the Oscars. And I don't mm-hmm. always think that the Best Picture wins, as I'm sure you'll agree. But <laughs> yeah. um, uh, I think the story was really, really well done. And, and, and it was pretty powerful, in my, in my opinion. I know a lot of people don't agree with that. But like I said, it was a, I think it was a very close second for me in terms of the movies I've seen every nominated movie except for Jojo Rabbit so I can't comment on that but uh, I, I thought Parasite was the best movie of the year but I would not be uh, upset if 1917 won. I, I would agree Parasite's up there. I think Marriage Story was my favorite this year but Parasite is a close close second and I, I, I could see I mean if 1917 doesn't win the best cinematography I would be stunned although I was very upset to see that The Lighthouse was only nominated for Best Cinematography and nothing else. I want to see The Lighthouse. That movie, I, I watched the preview finally on Netflix because you told me about it. Uh, and boy, that movie looks intense. And uh, it, it looks like it, it really could take a lot out of you to, to watch those two guys go nuts in a lighthouse. If, if you like David Lynch movies, you'll, you'll like The Lighthouse. <laughs> I, I, I do like David Lynch, and I love Willem Dafoe, so yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm good with that. And uh, it's hard for me to think that there could be a better achievement, though, than Parasite, just because of just that. I think that director is brilliant, Joey. I just think he's so good. Yeah, Bong Joon-ho is, is a fantastic director. If you haven't seen his other movies, um, Okja and... Um, Snowpiercer. Snowpiercer, yes, Snowpiercer. That's a great yeah. movie too, and I, I hadn't yeah. seen that movie until recently, uh, and I, I was blown away by how good it was. Well, I, uh, I guess this wraps up another another movie another movie corner with John, but we'll we'll have more. I'm sure once the Oscars happen, we'll we'll, uh, we'll all hop on here and yell about the fact that Ford versus Ferrari won Best Picture or something like that. So, yeah. <laughs> Ford versus Ferrari was a good movie. It wasn't the best movie of the year. I agree. All right, John. Well, thank you for uh, for chatting with me. Sounds good. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. I'd like to thank Megan, Jacob, Humberto, and John for joining me today. If you like what you heard and you want to hear more, you can do so by searching for Indie Matters on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you have comments, criticism, or even praise, you can email me at joey at theenvindie.com. And if you want to support the podcast or an indie event, you can email editors at theenvindie.com. People with Bodies does our theme music, and you can find more of their music on Spotify or Bandcamp. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm Joey Lovato, and we'll talk to you next week.